we're going to uh, be doing tonight a session that we had with Rabbi Gordon Tucker, who's an amazing human being, an amazing rabbi. Um, he is uh, on the second page of your packet. It has his bio, um, which is like super long, like he's amazing. Um, and anyway, I love learning with him, and he's a member of the Hartman faculty, but he's been a congregational rabbi, he's been a scholar, he's been all these things. Now he's, you know, like part of the Hartman faculty, which I'm thrilled about. They snap up all the good people. Like once the good people are done leading a congregation or something, like they snap them up, which is so smart and so good and so right. Um, to keep the active, you know, um, amazing wisdom and collected memory and collected experience to keep it all here and present for us, even when you step back from the pulpit, is just genius. So um, Gordon, Rabbi Gordon Tucker um, did a, se a session with us as rabbis, and it was recent. Um, so I'm not bringing you stuff actually from Hartman in the past. It's Hartman now. We, we still learn together as Hartman. Um, and so he learned with rabbis. It's called the rabbinic Beit Midrash. So you should feel very, right, um, like special that you're in now the rabbinic Beit Midrash. So this is a base Midrash. It's a, a, a hall of study for rabbis. So I'm sharing with you what he shared with us as rabbis uh, very recently. Be and the reason I wanted to do it with you is because it's timely. Um, and it is meant to be, of course, about learning Jewish texts and Jewish philosophy and Jewish whatever, um, but you'll hear how it relates to our time. Um, the topic is how firm are truth's legs? Truth. We're talking about truth. What do we kind of do with that? Like, what do we do with truth in our time in this moment? Because you can turn on several different networks on TV and you can get what are called alternative facts. Where does truth, like, how do we even start exploring a relationship to the idea of truth? Uh, and so uh, Rabbi Gordon Tucker is just kind of playing with this. This is the rabbinic sandbox. So just, this is not a huge, amazing lecture of aha moments. This is us being in the rabbi sandbox and just kind of playing with Jewish texts and Jewish philosophy around the idea of, Kind of what's up with the idea of truth right now? And I think it's a very apt, right, subject and a very, uh, a very important conversation. So I, I don't want to belittle what I'm about to share with you, but I don't want to pretend that this is some insight into, oh, okay, now we understand. It's just like, let's just play with this for a little while. So he divides his uh, presentation to us as rabbis, his conversation with us as rabbis into three parts. And the first part is called Basically, like, why is truth important? Like, what, what Jewish texts do we have that, that point to this idea of truth being important? Why does it matter? And so we're going to go to sharing the first text. That is text number two. Now, the presence of the God of Israel had moved from the cherub on which it had rested to the platform of the house. Don't worry about any of that. He called to the man clothed in linen. This is Ezekiel the prophet sharing a vision, sharing one of his prophetic visions. He called to the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist. And God said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men, meaning people, who moan and groan. 
because of all the abominations that are committed in it, meaning in the city of Jerusalem. To the others, he said in my hearing, follow him through the city and strike, show no pity or compassion, kill off graybeard youth and maiden, women and children, but do not touch any person who bears the mark. Begin here at my sanctuary. Right, a terrifying text. We don't read the terrifying text of the prophets very often, but this is out of Jewish tradition. I'm not bringing it to you to scare you, I promise. Um, I'm bringing it to you to, because the rabbis then have a conversation about this text. This is considered a prophetic text. So this is considered the word of God in the tradition. Uh, and so the prophet speaks the word of God, and then the rabbis have to kind of deal with that. They kind of have to hold that. Like, I think Ezekiel did a lot of psilocybin, personally. Like, I think he was on shrooms and had a lot of these visions when he was, like, in some other kind of state. Like, uh, he sees this animal that has four different faces of different animals and whatever. So he's a little crazy. But let's get at what the rabbis see as the point that Ezekiel takes that is the divine truth that's being revealed in the, the divine word. So what is that? Put a mark on the foreheads of the people who are complaining about the abominations that are happening in Jerusalem, right? So the, the society of Jerusalem had become so morally uh, degraded um, that there were very few people who stood up against it. So put a mark on their foreheads, and those are the people who are going to be protected, says the prophet. When God comes forward, the people who will be protected are the people with the marks on their forehead. You're thinking already, I'm sure, Bible uh, people, Torah study people, you're thinking the mark of Cain, hopefully already. Lisa's nodding, right? So there's there's this idea of the mark on the head. Okay. So what is the mark on the head, Right. Well, well, according to Ezekiel, according to Yechezkel, it is tav. So if you look in the Hebrew, it doesn't say sign. It says tav. Well, tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. So we're used to seeing tav a certain way. Like you all can, those of you who know any Hebrew or know the alphabet, can um, imagine what the letter tav looks like. Well, the the thing we don't know is that in Proto-Hebrew, what Ezekiel probably would have been referencing is an X. The top was an, was an X. So there's an X on the forehead of the people who are horrified by what's happening, the moral degradation that's happening in their city. They're complaining about it. They're vocal about it. Those people get an X on the forehead, and they are saved. Let's hang on to that for a sec, right? So that's Ezekiel, that's source number two. So now uh, we're going to go to the end of source number three. And we're going to look at this last sentence by Reish Lakish. This is from the Talmud. This is now the Talmud commenting on Ezekiel, right? So this is hundreds of years later. The Talmud is commenting on this thing of the X on the forehead, and the question is, why a tav? Why is that the sign that go? why not an aleph? Why not a yud symbolizing the name of God? Why not the first letter of the alphabet? Reish Lakish said, 
Tav is the last letter. You see me? I'm in the last sentence of this paragraph in English. Rish Lakish said, Tav is the last letter of the seal of the Blessed Holy One. As Rabbi Hanina said, the seal of the Blessed Holy One is truth. All right. So what's a seal? In the ancient world, you had to seal things, right? You, you had to place your seal on something for it to be done. So it was wet clay, and you took your, you know, seal, and you stamped it in the wet clay on a pot, on a vessel, on a document. That was your, your chotem. And so what is the chotem of the Kaddish Baruch Hu? The, the Talmud says, I'll read it to you in Hebrew, in Aramaic. Chaninya chotmo shalakadosh baruchu emet. The seal of the Blessed Holy One is truth. All right, so that's why people get marked, like with this mark of truth, because emet is spelled aleph mem tav. So tav is the last letter of the word for in Hebrew for truth. So you're going to mark the head of everybody who's screaming about the truth. But what's the truth? The truth is related, right, to godliness, to holiness, to the divine, to how things are supposed to be. That's truth. And the last letter of that is a tav. The word is emet. And the tav is the t of emet. And it was an x. Okay. So now we understand from Rish Lakish why it's a tav. Because it's the last letter of the word emet. But what it really lifts up for us for our conversation is that for Reish Lakish, it trumps all the other arguments. The last one given in the Talmud is kind of the one that wins. We have all these other introductory arguments. It means this. It means that. It means this. But Reish Lakish comes at the end to say, "Mm, mm, 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 mm." what it really means is that this is the last letter of truth. And so truth is what's most important. That is the signature When God signs off on something, God signs truth. So he then brought to us this text, which I had never seen, from Isaiah Horowitz, called Shnei Luchot Habrit, the letters Derech Eretz. So this is uh, a writing by this uh, teacher, this uh, master, this Hasidic master. Um, And he tells this whole big story Um, which really the whole story is not what's important. It's kind of the point of the story. So let's go to uh, this sentence, when this man, so we're one, two, three, four lines down towards the end of that line. When this man and his siblings were young and a complaint was leveled about something improper that was done, his father would say, whoever confesses and tells the truth will be forgiven as long as he's careful from now on not to repeat the infraction. But as for one who denies responsibility, and my investigation shows that he lied, his punishment will be doubled and redoubled. How many of you have said this to your child? I have, or to young people, or to your spouse even, right? It's like, if you tell me the truth, however bad it is what you've done, we can get through this. You lie to me, and I find out you've lied? Oh, now we have a whole nother level, a whole nother set of problems. Right now, now you're in big trouble. All right, so 
That is just how he did it. Anyone who confessed not only was forgiven, but given coins as a present, as a reward for telling the truth. Anyone who lied was given a severe punishment, and that way he raised his children in the value of truth. So what our teacher, Rabbi Gordon Tucker, was bringing this text to show us was not so much about how you parent or how you talk to someone else about what's, but, but then what was so important to this father was that the children be raised in the value of truth, telling the truth, that that was more important than anything, right? doesn't really matter what you did. What matters more than your actions was that you're ready to tell the truth about them. Right. And so in Jewish tradition, there's this longstanding idea that that truth is important. And so, like, we could stop here for a second and, like, ask why? Like, if my kid stole something, like, of course, I'm going to make her take it back and give it back to the store owner. But, like, why is what is this parent? Like, what is the tradition trying to say here that, like, truth is more important than anything? Like, if you just tell me the truth about it. It's okay. Now, Bert, here's where I struggle. How do I get back to, oh, there it is. Stop sharing. Duh. All right. So does anyone have anything they want to say about that? Like just that this idea that like telling the truth is what's more important than anything, not what you did, not what that means, but telling the truth about it. All right. So text number five, this is from the liturgy of Yom Kippur Katan. I'm not going to go into a lot about what Yom Kippur Katan is or why we have a separate liturgy for it. Don't worry about it. But this is Jewish liturgy that's been around forever and that we have observed every year, if you're in a different kind of community than ours, call it Orthodox, um, you or ultra-Orthodox, you would do this liturgy on Yom Kippur Katan. But we're just going to look at the actual text because um, that's what interests us right now. All right. So, Rebarashalaylam. Master of the universe, your court of justice does not operate as do human courts. The practice among people is this. When a person sues his neighbor for money and it comes before a judge in court, if the defendant denies the claim, he will be spared any consequence. But if he admits the claim in whole or in part, he will be required to pay. But your court of justice is not like this. If a person denies the charge against them, woe to them and woe to their soul. But if they admit the charge and renounce their behavior, you show mercy on them. All right. So what are we getting here? We're getting this concept that a human court means if you lie, you get off. If you lie and say, I was not even there, I don't even know what you're talking about, then you get off. In the divine court, the lie means you pay. Right? In a human court, if you lie, you don't pay. And if you tell the truth, well, kind of, yeah, I didn't realize it was his, you know, pair of tennis shoes that cost $7 million. I wasn't aware. I thought they were mine. <laughs> like, but if you... But if you tell any part of the truth, you're going to get charged. You're going to have to pay. In the divine court, the lie means you pay, and the truth gets you mercy, right? Only if you tell the truth um, is mercy shown to you. So part of what this brings up for me is 
how do the rabbis understand the concept of truth? Right? This is all written by the rabbis. So what did they imagine about truth? The differences in like what truth means and how it's valued in the human and divine realm. If you, if you lie in this world, you are often rewarded. If you lie in the divine realm, that is seriously bad news, right? And so how do we bring, how do we start to bring the, the we of course don't understand a divine court as liberal Jews. Of course, we don't have an imagination of a divine court, but I do resonate with this idea that looking at it from a human perspective, if you just go to court, if you lie and forget court, you stand up in front of the American people and you lie every day. Well, you get some kind of credit from some part of the population anyway, right? But, you know, if you tell the truth, then, you know, you're, the, the human mind in that, in that person's mind says, oh, I can't tell the truth because then I, like, I'm going to have to pay something. Like something, something, it will cost me something to pay the truth. I'll look bad. My reputation will be bad. And, and, and it can go from the highest realm, you know, the presidency down to like sitting in a meeting with your coworkers and saying, if I admit that I screwed this up, right, like then, like I take a hit. And that's the human realm. The divine realm is you lie and that's the worst hit. That's the worst thing that can happen is that you've lied. And I think this is something that we are feeling as Americans right now. We're feeling it when we watch uh, our government on the media. I feel like we get it, that there is this huge disconnect between lying and telling the truth in terms of what is a morally driven, morally, uh, what's incumbent upon us morally and ethically, right? Isn't it to tell the truth? But if you're living in the human realm, this makes me go, oh, right, well, that doesn't get you very much, does it? Right? Often. But anyway, so I think... I think the the thing from this liturgy is that, like, yeah, so human truth and what it means for us is different than what it means uh, if we're talking about the realm of holiness and being a good person and uh, talking about moral values and ethics. All right. So then he, he went from, okay, why is truth important to what the breakdowns of truth look like, right? So here we go with the Babylonian Talmud, um, the Sanhedrin. 97a. I want to go to the last sentence of that. So this is talking about two ways the Messiah will come to us. Rebecca, will you tell Chaim to quit texting? All right. So sorry, <laughs> I couldn't turn off my volume. So um, so how does truth break down? So the Talmud talks about two ways we will get the Messiah. What's going to bring the Messiah? Why would the Messiah finally come? Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. What will finally bring the Mashiach? There are two thoughts. One is that the world merits the coming of the Mashiach, right? So you hear Chabad and other people talking about until every Jew lights candles, until those homosexuals stop doing what they're doing, the Mashiach can't come, right? Mashiach can only come when we are living into a place where the world deserves for Mashiach to come. 
But there's a second view in Jewish tradition, which, because we're Jews, is completely opposite to that view. And that view says, Mashiach, the Messiah, will only come when the world has no other choice. Like, it is so bad, it is so bad, that God has to bring Mashiach. It's so bad that there's just no other way this is going to happen without divine intervention, and that is bringing Mashiach. Okay, so let's look at the last sentence of that paragraph. Those of that generation, meaning the generation when the Mashiach comes, will present themselves as if they were dogs, and truth will be no more, as it is stated. And the truth is no more. It's like disappeared. And he who departs from evil is negated. So the righteous person is negated. But what is, what is the focus of the Talmud here? What's going to actually bring Mashiach? The society has collapsed to the place, to the point where truth is disappeared. That is a marker of how bad it is that you have sunk so deep that you have to call the like existential roto-rooter in. Because it's so clogged and so bad that like you have to bring Mashiach. All right. And that's about truth for the rabbis in the Talmud. Okay. So let's go to the next text. Um, and then Rebecca, see if people are raising their hands and if anybody has anything that they want to say. Thank you. Because I'll stop if there's enough uh, questions or comments. But let's go to Hannah Arendt. Text number seven. All right. Oh, this one scared me. This one scared me a lot, a lot. All right. If everybody, oh, wait, sorry. If everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer. This is because lies by their very nature have to be changed, and a lying government has constantly to rewrite its own history. Drop down. And a people that can no longer believe anything cannot make up its mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but also of its capacity to think and judge. And with such a people, you can do as you please. Now, we may have our problems with Hannah Arendt. I get it, right? I have my issues with her. But holy buckets. If that ain't true, I don't know what's true. <laughs> I just spoke about truth. But, right, like, so the lie is not the issue. If you introduce enough lies that nobody can believe anything anymore, which is exactly what's happening right now, that's exactly what social scientists are saying is happening right now. That there are so many lies, there are just enough lies being introduced that people feel like, I can't believe anything. Like, I don't know what to believe anymore. And if you throw up your hands and say, I can't believe anything anymore, then you have robbed people of the capacity to think and judge. And with such a people, you can do as you please. That's where I'm terrified right now in this moment. I'm really terrified. that I talk to smart, intelligent people who say, I don't know, Rabbi, you know, I heard blah, blah, blah. And then I heard blah, blah, blah on the other. And so who knows anymore? And I'm like, that is not an answer. Like, who knows anymore? We, 
read definitive articles from respected scientists that are peer reviewed. What do you mean you don't know? But you introduce just enough lies. You infuse enough lies into the system. This is what the Russians did with the disinformation campaign, right, for the election. In 2016, they didn't need to convince a whole mess of the population that what the propaganda they were putting out is true. That's, that was not their intention. What I read about what they did was they wanted to foment doubt in the American populace. Exactly what Hannah Arendt is saying here. Exactly this. Foment just enough, put in enough lies, enough disinformation and nobody can trust anything. And once you have that situation in a democracy, it's they're up for grabs. That is really terrifying to me. Right. Let's go. Okay. This is my, oh, Bert raised his hand. So let's, uh, Rebecca, will you note that? Because I just want to go on to this other one and then we'll take questions or comments. Um, this one was so impressive to me that I went online and bought the book. And I couldn't wait for the physical book to come, even though I'm supporting Powell Books in Oregon and I want them to send it to me physically. Um, so I'm trying not to do everything on Amazon, but I had to download the book because I was so excited about this source. All right, you ready for this? Watch this. I had to download the whole book. All right, here we go. On bullshit, right? From uh, Harry Frankfurt, a professor at Princeton, called On Bullshit. The bullshitter may not deceive us, or even intend to do so, either about the facts or about what he takes the facts to be. What he does necessarily attempt to deceive us about is his enterprise. His only indispensably distinctive characteristic is that in a certain way, he misrepresents what he's up to, right? So it's not the facts that are the problem here. That's not what's going on. It's deception as the means to getting what the person wants, just deceiving you about what they're trying to actually do. They're not actually talking about facts. Okay, but whatever. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, here we go. Shut up, Judy. All right. Um, she's laughing at me. This is the crux of the distinction between him and the liar. It is impossible for someone to lie unless he thinks he knows the truth. Producing bullshit requires no such conviction. A person who lies is thereby responding to the truth, and he is to that extent respectful of it, right? So the person who's lying knows the truth, acknowledges there's a truth, and then says, I'm going to contradict that truth and try to make you believe something different. But they have a relationship to the truth, right, on some level, but not the bullshitter. All right, here we go. Uh, drop down to the bottom of that paragraph. For the bullshitter, we're in the middle of this you know, big paragraph. For the bullshitter, however, all these bets are off. He's neither on the side of the true nor on the side of the false. His eye is not on the facts at all, as the eyes of the honest man and of the liar are, except insofar as they may be pertinent to his interest in getting away with what he says. By virtue of this, Bullshit is a greater enemy of the truth than lies are. You see why I ordered the book? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That is right 
right? Someone who lies admits there are facts and has a relationship to that truth and says, I'm going to try to convince you of the opposite of that. So I'm going to try to convince you by my lie, right, to contradict those facts. The bullshitter is only lying to you about their motive, about what they're actually trying to do, which is come off as someone who is relevant. Come off as someone who knows anything about anything. Come off as someone who's running a government that's handling everything so amazingly beautifully. Um, Or fill in the blank, whatever you might think uh, about that. All right. So any comments so far? I know Bert, you had your hand up about the Hannah Arendt text. Um, Now we've done another text that I love so much. Yes. I was going to say, I saw a a news article today about a poll done about COVID-19. And it found that the majority of the people in the United States are totally confused about it. Right. Don't know what to believe. Right. And aside from all of the politics and the political issue, here's an example, and I'm sure we all feel that, the uncertainty. You don't know what is true, what is not true. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Do I dare go and buy uh, a sandwich at this store? Do, do I, I eat iPods? Right. Do I, do, do I let this woman, uh, our dear, wonderful uh, person who cleans our house, come into our house? And you don't know. And this creates a real sense. I'm not sure it's what she was talking about. She was talking more politically because she's a sociologist. But I'm sure we're all feeling this. Like, what do you what do? You do? We're, we're like trying to find. It's like walking on quicksand. You can't figure out where to put your foot down. So, Bert, I totally get what you're saying about, like, we're all confused. But I I think what Hannah Arendt is saying is there are people who are involved in disinformation campaigns to undermine the sense that there's any truth. Like, you could figure out, okay, if I really want to chase this down, should I let my, my caregiver in? Well, I would chase down, who has she been with? I would ask her that. Who have you been with? Like, our housekeeper has not been around anybody because she's so terrified. Right. She won't take the bus. So she only comes to us now on Saturdays because her husband can give her the car and she only comes to us. She's afraid to go anywhere else. Right. So. um, So we made the decision. She wears a mask and gloves while she's here because she's scared. I'm like, okay, well, that works for me. She's disinfecting everything while she's wearing a mask and gloves. Like, what am I worried about? Right. So and I'm not anywhere near her because I always want to be out of her way. So what I'm saying is there's a way to get to truth. If you actually want to know what should I do in this moment, there's ways you could get to that. What Hannah Arendt is talking about and that I think is, is one of the existential challenges of our time is that there, there is a disinformation campaign to launch just enough doubt that people feel like there is no truth possible. Right. Her, she wrote a classic called On Authoritarianism. She's an expert on that. That's right. Part of, this is part of her whole sense of what is it psychologically that creates an authoritarian thing. And part of it is isolating and confusing people. Right. That if you can isolate people and they don't trust anybody and they get totally confused, then you can feed them whatever you want. That's right. That is kind of a scary thing all over the world. And or the people can't make a decision. Like, that's what she's saying. They can't think and act if they have no sense that they're acting on the truth, right? So 
yes, you can manipulate them and take them in a certain direction. But the, the scarier thing to me is that the people then can't make a decision, right? That you can do anything you want right now, like now, cause they can't act cause they don't have a sense that they know what's true and, and know what to do. I mean, it's related to what you're saying for sure. But, um, but that's like a terrifying thought to me. And, you know, Bert's, much more experienced and way more wise than me and what he's been exposed to in terms of her philosophy. But I'm like, that's not the Hannah Arendt I knew. And that was not the kind of topics that I studied about what she wrote about, but I'm like, Oh my gosh, that is, that's really scary. And then, and, and it resonates with everything I've read about. That's what the Russian campaign was all about. It wasn't about convincing people of alternative facts. It was about saying there are no facts. You can't trust facts. There's not an objective truth. There's not anything you can prove. And therefore, therefore, trust me. And therefore, trust me. Therefore, trust me. Exactly. I'm going to come in and tell you, right? And and there's no other choice. Like if you, if you feel like there's no truth to it, then the person screaming the loudest, I got this, is the one who like claims power, which is what we just saw. So let's go to, wait, I have to check my notes about what I wanted to share with you and what I decided you should read on your own. What did we just do? We just did Hannah Arendt, which was text number seven, right? Text number eight, we did bullshit. How much did you like that? Just tell me. Did anyone else love that distinction? Right? Between lying, the liar, and the bullshitter, the liar has some respect for the truth. Right? I'm going to try to convince you, you know, that the truth, it's the opposite of that or whatever. Right? Like, but they have, they know the facts. The bullshitter doesn't care about the facts. The bullshitter only wants to make sure you don't understand exactly what they're trying to do. The facts are irrelevant. Truth is irrelevant. And I'm like, oh my God. I have gotten so, I froth at the mouth, right? When some things come on CNN and Judy too, like, and like, like we just can't even. So, but then I finally said to her, I got it. I got it. I'm screaming at the screen, liar. You're a liar. How can people get away with lying in front of the American people? Lie. And I'm like, that's not what's making me crazy. Yes. That's part of it. Like that somebody can lie and get away with it. I, That is not what was eating me up inside. What was eating me up inside was the bullshit, right? That what you're really doing is trying to act like you're somebody who knows anything about, you don't really care about the facts. You don't even know the facts and they're irrelevant to you. All you care about is bullshitting the American people into believing that you're the hero. You're the one who knows. You're the guy who's got it. You're the guy. That's all that, that's what was making me crazy. And on every side, it's on our side too. Our side. It's on, it's on all sides. Like, but it's like, that's what makes me crazy is the art of bullshit instead of just lying. <laughs> lying makes me mad. But I think it was the other that like really has me crazy. It's like, don't, doesn't everybody see what's going on here? Like the emperor has no pants. No vest, no tie, no cufflinks, nada. All right. So anyway, all 
All right, let's go then to um, my notes tell me that now after text nine, uh, let's go to text nine. Lisa, Simon, do you have a question? You have your hand raised. Lisa, Simon? You it have wasn't to unmute yourself. Yeah, I did unmute myself. It wasn't a question. It's a, it just, it's a snake oil salesman. At the very beginning of time, we all said he was the emperor with no clothes. And it's a, a snake oil salesman is someone who's manipulating. You're manipulating to have him go your way. Right. And it's the different disinformation. It's horrible. Well, for me, like always that language for it, right? And like an analysis of it helps me feel calmer yes. and better. So it's, yes, of course. Like, Yes. And I'm like, oh, I love this new nuanced understanding and this nuanced language of it's not about the lies only. It's about you're lying about your mission standing up there. Right? It's not about temperature has to be 98.7 or higher or 100.2 or lower, and you're going to argue about that and lie about it. That The facts are irrelevant. What you're lying about is what you're even doing up there. Pretending to care about what, you know, so Not even pretending. like it was so helpful for me to have language around it. So that I got a little less crazy. Not a lot less crazy, but a I think Lori had something now. Lori, are you trying to say something? Yeah. And then also this co- explains the constant attacks on press and on scientists and on intellectuals, which is done by every authoritarian. I mean, because they want to come back to the facts. Because the idea is, if you, our traditional sources of where you go for information, if you can't trust those sources, then there's no place to go for information except for what I tell you. Right. So if you think about the Pol Pot, the Chinese, they all sent intellectuals to their deaths or to, you know, camps. Russians killed the intellectuals. You know, press freedoms are destroyed. You know, those are the basic tools so that there's nobody that you can listen to other than your government. Right. Who don't care about the, and then you keep trying to bring them back to the facts. And then they like, are like, wait, what are you talking about? Right. Like, and they, right. Want to. Like hear. someone says something's like, well, you're fake media. You know, you're, you're yeah. the old news. So. The mainstream media. Um, all right. So let's go to text number uh, text number nine. All right. So this is Machiko Kukatani, the death of truth. Um, and uh, at text nine, people trying to win respectability for clearly discredited theories, or in the case of Holocaust revisionists, trying to whitewash entire chapters of history, exploited the postmodernist argument that all truths are partial. Right, so that's an argument that's been put out in our time. The postmodernist argument is that all truths are partial. There is no ultimate truth. Deconstructionist history, the scholar Deborah Lipstadt, which we study with at Hartman, observed in denying the Holocaust, has the potential to alter dramatically the way established truth is transmitted from generation to generation. And it can foster a climate in which no fact, no event, and no aspect of history has any fixed meaning or content. Any truth can be retold. Any fact can be recast. There is no historical reality. So what, what, uh, what, he's t- what Rabbi Gordon Tucker said when he brought this text was he said, this is what he calls the weaponization of doubt, right? 
So if you have climate change experts who all say climate change, blah, 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 here are the facts, here's the science, it's human caused. If you have just enough, like 97% of everybody agrees, if you have 3% of scientists who say, yes, of course, all of those facts are accurate, of course climate change is real, it's just not human caused. We've always had wide swings from ice ages to droughts, we, and we are in just now a big interglacial period, right? And you have scientists who will tell you this. We're in a big interglacial period. That's normal. And we're going to have glaciers again. We're going to have another ice age. That's normal. It's not caused by humanity. This is how it's always been. All you need is 3% of scientists to say that to then give folks who want to argue against climate change weaponizing doubt, right? Well, there's not consensus among the scientists. Look at this article and this article and this article. And he said to us, the tobacco industry did this successfully for decades. All you need was doubt that the tobacco actually caused the cancer. If you had enough doubt that there were environmental factors, there were genetic factors, there's enough else going on, you give enough, just enough room for doubt to grow and you can weaponize it. And then the consensus that there's any kind of real agreement falls apart. And that this is one of the ways that you undermine even 97% of the scientists understanding what is true. Like what we would call true. We know this is human caused, but you introduce enough doubt, just like the example from Hannah Arendt, enough doubt, and it doesn't have to be huge. And you now undercut the sense of consensus. And now people are like, well, again, now I don't know what to believe. So I'm going to use that language from now on. When someone wants to say to me, well, you know, there's a study, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to say, you know what? I will not allow you to weaponize doubt. I won't. The consensus is otherwise. But now I have language, like it calms me down to have language to say, I will not allow you, right, to, to weaponize doubt. That's what you're doing. You're trying to undercut the, the consensus of scientists understand this. They agree on this. The world community agrees on this. You're trying to bring in one little sliver and weaponize it. Not going to happen. Not, mm -mm, not with me, not in this conversation, and not on my watch. So I like that one. All right. Uh, nine, there can, we I, can I say something? Oh, not until you get a camera, George. Wait till tomorrow. All right, fine. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I think America is wonderful because it allows for doubt. If you look at Hitler's Germany, they monopolized the entire uh, communication system. So there was no doubt. It was, they created what I, I forget, some guy called pseudo cultural paranoia because everyone believed it. There was no doubt. Here, that there is doubt and there is in fact doubt on actions that we take because we don't know the science. Other things, it's, it's very true. 
but I think that certain people weaponize the doubt, and I think that's wonderful. And I think we have to be very thankful here in this country that we are allowed to have the opposing points of view. All right, so I want to be very clear. George, thank you for your comment. Um, as always, very thoughtful. Um, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about dissent or disagreement. Nobody's saying we shouldn't have active and vigorous debate. No one's saying that. What I'm saying is fomenting doubt is about everything yep. people agree on, that science agrees on, but that doesn't fit someone else's mission. So they want to foment enough doubt into the science, like the tobacco industry. They knew, they, they knew cigarettes were causing cancer. That's what I'm talking about. But they foment enough doubt. They put disinformation into the scientific literature so that people go, well, how do I know? That is what I'm talking about. It's purposeful. It's mission-driven. The mission is to screw up the people's ability to actually act. That's different from actual intellectual debate and actual scientific debate and actual political debate and religious debate. Those are, di that's different. That's honest. All of that is honest. This is talking about what's dishonest. Does that yeah. make sense, George? Oh, yes, that's absolutely. No, I think the concept of weaponizing doubt, which is being used here, is absolutely terrific. But what I'm saying is that the option, Hitler had an option, and that's totally con controlled all communications, all sources of information. And that this situation, from my point of view, is still better than Hitler's situation. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, Let's that's, be clear. We yeah. are not living under a totalitarian regime. Yeah. Let's be very grateful for that. Like that 100%. Like if we, you know, can thank our lucky stars. Yes. But, but, and, not but, and I think what a lot of these folks are saying is we're in the kind of murky place where it could lead to total, it could lead to a Hitler. Because if I don't know the truth, if I can't figure out the truth, then somebody needs to come tell it to me and enforce it. Yes, right? I agree. That's how Hitler got elected. He was elected by what Hannah Arendt called the people you can do anything with. Once there's total doubt and there's no understanding that there's truth that we can rely on or authority that we can rely on, then you turn to a totalitarian regime to tell you the truth. And that's where, that's where I think the conversation right now among a lot of us about this conversation about truth, that's where the fear is, George. Exactly yeah. what you're saying. Thank God we're not there. And the danger is we could get there. Yes, I agree. Like that. I, right? I agree with that. Thank you, George. Yeah. Thank you. Always I mean, it's, it's Bert. I'd throw another monkey wrench into this discussion. Great. I remember, I remember very little about what I studied in college. <laughs> and I put study in quotes. <laughs> in their quotes. Well, um, I didn't study. Yeah, but what, what, one of the more interesting courses I, I took was in something called epistemology which is the philosophy and the theory of knowledge. And one of the things I learned, and this gets to the word truth, is that there are many different kinds of truth. And too often we confuse one kind of truth with another, and we end up arguing about what is true, and we're really talking about different kinds of truth. Just as a simple example, did a politician say X? 
You know, did, did a politician say that there were going to be 5 million tests soon? And then, you know, that's something you, you can, quote, prove it by showing a video. Okay, that's very different from the truth of when I look at my wife and I say, I love you. Or the truth of Jews were enslaved in Egypt. Okay, that is, is that a historical truth? Is it a physical truth? If CNN were there, would they have been able to interview the, the, the slaves? Or is it more of a cultural truth? So th I think this makes it more complicated because there's so many different kinds of truth, not that are necessarily contradictory, but that are talking about different kinds of things. I think what, you're talk what these people seem to be talking about is demonstrable political truth. Well, I, I think what we're talking about is there's a difference between facts and then what happens with them to define what's true. So like you just said, mm -hmm. did the politician say 5 million tests or not? Well, it doesn't really matter if the politician said it and it was recorded on video and it's played on this news station this way, but on another news station, it's like, well, that is not what the president said. The president said, so like, so the, the point is not really, are we talking about facts that we can video or are we talking about esoteric truths? Like I believe, you know, I have experienced the truth of the love of my child, right? right? I want to be careful not to mix those up because right. that's not what we're talking about is mushing right. them together, right? Like we're talking about, the, we're talk, I think we're talking in the realms of there are facts, but once you bring human beings into the mix and how they're presented and what you do with the society and a community, that's what we're talking about. What, what is real truth there, even if the facts seem to be pretty evident, right? The fact that I love my child, I can't, no one can prove or disprove that. Like, I, I don't think we're talking at that realm of truth. And I think it's true. I hope it's true. God, yes, it is the truth. Now, the, the only point that I was making is the word, tr I hear what you're saying about fact, although there are people who talk about alternative facts. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> right, right. But that it, it, once you get into this area, and I understand exactly what you're talking about, there's all kinds of other aspects of this that have to do with, you know, different kinds of truth and different kinds. I I don't know that one could establish that as it is a fact that Jews were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. But again, I, th I think we're not talking about that level. No, but that's what I'm saying. We're talking about a different kind of a thing. Right, for that's sure. Trying to confuse everybody. But I would love to have a conversation. You can help me think about how to construct it. And Mark Edelstein was somewhere. Uh, he's gone now. Uh, but we can have the conversation. Like, what does it mean? Is it true? that the Jews were enslaved in Egypt and then pushed into the promised land with a conquest. Oh, there's Mark. Um, good. You didn't leave us. So um, like, that's a conversation we could have. That is a, a very interesting conversation to me, obviously um, about what is true about that. What is not, I just had it on the phone. I swear. I swear. I had it on the phone earlier tonight with my Chabruta partner. We were talking about this and she's like, well, I can hold both those things. We came out of Egypt and we didn't. And I'm like, okay, uh, what is like what? Is, yeah, me too. If we're talking about what's true factually and what's true mythologically, and she's like, "Well, those two things are not so different for me." I'm like, "They're really different for me." So, like, I would love to have that conversation. What what is truth 
mean to us? Is it about facts? Is it about mythological existential truths that we know? Like, right? Like Rabbi Harold Kushner said to his daughter, touch my love. When she was talking about science and that's the only way you can know anything is he said, touch my love. Right. And she said, well, I can't. And he's like, well, then it must not exist. So I must not love you. And she looked confused for a second. And then she was like, but I know you like, of course you love me. He's like, well, touch that measure that. Right. So, so that would be another whole kind of conversation to have that I think would be fascinating, but all right. Somebody, Mark, you raised your hand. After Mark, I would like to talk. Okay, George. Again. But Mark has a again, camera. Again, again, uh, again, to, again. To a certain extent, I think the uh, conversation is wobbling. I'm reminded of uh, the way Como starts his news conferences every morning now with a picture of Jack Webb, and he says, just the facts, ma'am. So... Facts are facts. 58,000 people died. 58,000 people died. What goes from the facts becomes a whole other issue. But a fact is a fact. I mean, it's... Not anymore. Not anymore. But that's like a a foundational element. Not anymore. I I would just... I think people say, okay, 58,000 died, that's a fact. Why? How? What caused that? Those are the facts people are looking into. And there's huge fomented, on purpose, weaponized doubt about that. Because we didn't respond soon enough. We didn't shut down soon enough. We knew, we saw, and we didn't do anything. So 58,000 died. Like, so the fact that 58,000 okay, we can agree on that. That's not where people live. That's not where they stay. They then go to, so what are the facts behind that? And that's where all this craziness is fomented. Weaponizing doubt, bullshit, overlying. Like, that's where all of it happens. So I agree. There are, there are very small things we can say. Yes, we all agree that that's a fact, and we all know that. But climate change is a fact. Everyone can agree. That's not, that doesn't help anything. Everyone agrees there's climate change. 58,000 have died. That is, that is not a truth that's helpful. Everyone agrees on that. It's a fact. Go one step past that and the facts are up for grabs is, is, is what we're exploring. Like what, what is truth past 58,000? What does it mean? Like what, what, where do we need to look for now? All right. All right. I want to go on to 13. We're on 13. Yeah. So that means I have to share my screen. Double click on that. Ah! Bert, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. All right. 13. Thank God for Bert Kleinman. All right. So let's look at text 13. I've skipped a bunch. Um, We're going to text 13. We're going to drop down to if we aspire to, which is, Uh, Like the third sentence, uh, mid-sentence, middle of the paragraph, third sentence. If we aspire to objective truth in this area, that is, truth that is independent of our beliefs, we would be wise to hold many of our views more tentatively than we are naturally inclined to do. In ethics, even without the benefit of many clear examples, 
We should be open to the possibility of progress as we are in other areas with a consequent effect of reduced confidence in the finality of our current understanding. It is evident that we are at a primitive stage of moral development. Drop down to the next sentence. The idea that the basic principles of morality are known and that the problems all come in their interpretation and application is one of the most fantastic conceits to which our conceited species has been drawn. I love that sentence. It's so tangled. I don't even know exactly what it means, but I think it's fantastic. The idea that if we cannot easily know it, there is no truth here is no less conceited. Not all of our ignorance in these areas is, skip that. The possibility of moral progress is an essential condition of moral progress. The pursuit of objectivity is only a method of getting closer to the truth. It is not guaranteed to succeed, and there is room for skepticism about its specific results in ethics and elsewhere. It has to be suited to govern our lives day by day in a way in which theoretical understanding of the physical world does not. And to do its work, it must be far more widely accepted and internalized than in areas where the public is willing to defer to expert opinion. I won't go into a lot of this right now, but if we uh, aspire to objective truth, what I liked about this, if we aspire to objective truth, we need to be humble. Like we think, oh, I can't access objective truth. We need to be way more humble. We're moving closer, yes, which is what he argues in this, Thomas Nagel argues, we're getting there. We're moving closer, but we are not there yet, All right? The idea that the basic principles of morality are known and that the problems all come in their interpretation and application, meaning that if we can think anything is true, like really true, he's talking here about morally, you know, what is moral, what's not. But if you go underneath that, okay, what's true about morality or not true? The, the, the fact that we even think they're known and that the problems just come in their interpretation and application, like we know what's true. We just don't know exactly how to apply it or interpret it is one of the most fantastic conceits to which our conceited species has been drawn. That is hubris. He's saying that's hubris, that we even think we know the, the like outlines of truth. What's true? How to define that? Like, you, that we are so caught up in our own hubris, we cannot possibly understand even the ways by which you get at those truths. And it's not saying we shouldn't say, so therefore is nothing, nothing is true. <laughs> He's not saying that. The idea of the, the possibility of moral progress, meaning what's morally true, is an essential condition of that progress. So it's not saying we should just give up and say, well, we can't know anything, but it's saying none of it is inevitable. Like we should be very careful right now to get it, that this could all be reconstructed in 10 years, in a way that we cannot possibly imagine right now. 
all of our ideas about truth, all of our ideas about objectivity, all of our ideas about all of this, we have to get it that we have to be very humble because we know that what we thought was true before wasn't and it will happen again that that's, you know, not the case, what we thought was true. So I see there's a lot of hands up. What you just read, doesn't the Jewish tradition say that there is a core of truth and that is part of our job is to understand it over a period of time? Question of you, obviously there's a question of humility, but if we didn't think there was some core of truth in whatever you want to call it, text, revelation, whatever you want to call it, I mean, I don't know. It just seems to me to run counter to what Judaism is all about. No, what he's saying actually is, and, I am, and I'm not saying I knew this right off the top of my head. Like, I have to look at it over and over and over. It's like Heschel. That is the most beautiful, gorgeous, truest thing I've ever heard. I have no idea what he just said. So I kind of bring this to you in that mode. Um, so I'm not saying, like, I just knew this off the top of my head. But looking at this sentence again, to your question, Burke, if we aspire to objective truth in this area, that that is truth that is independent of our beliefs, right? What you're saying, ultimate truth. We would be wise to hold many of our views more tentatively than we are inclined to do. So, so he's arguing if we think there's any truth that's actually objective truth, then we should be very careful about what we assert right now. Right? Because we're still evolving and we're not even close to understanding the whole truth. Right? And so we have to be very careful about hubris. And I think that's entirely true. Uh, not, not to use the word true. Like I should use it. I think that's accurate. <laughs> but anyway, do you want to respond to that, Bert? Uh, other than uh, what was it? Hillel said, don't be sure of yourself until the day you die. There, right? there is, right. But nevertheless, for those of us, I mean, I, I can just talk personally. I engage in Torah study and in Jewish study like this because I think in that engagement, somewhere in there is some kind of truth that I can understand and not that it's all me and there's nothing there. Right. And so what I think what he's saying is, so we can say for ourselves in KI, you know, April 2020, we're 2020? 2020, that um, that we kind of, this is what we hold to kind of be our understanding of truth. But, but holding that with a lot of humility and an understanding that our, our relationship to truth is evolving. And that's so Kaplanian to me. But don't we also say that it's not just, it's partially in us and partially outside of us as well? Yeah, I, I think that's what he's saying. Let's hold that with a lot of humility, our understanding about our relationship to what's true out there. George? A couple of things. We can hear you. One is that in terms of ultimate truth, if you think of the normal curve, which everybody knows, the bell-shaped curve, everyone who draws it does not have it touch the bottoms, right? Does not touch the bottom, uh, the the basic line, the X line, right? And because there's always a faster gun in the West, there's always more to learn. 
it doesn't matter. So I agree, actually, with what the, the previous, what you said, that truth, ultimate truth, there is no such thing, but we keep learning and uh, um, learning from it and improving it. But I did want to make another point before. Yes, sir. And that is with the concept of bullshitter, which I'm very familiar with. But uh, (laughs) Yeah, your profession, you saw a lot of it, I'm sure. Right. But that is, the truth is that whatever is said, the motive, the overt motivation is not what it's about. It's the covert motivation. That's right. And it's, if that's the truth, is the covert motivation, then that's a problem. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. Um, that's really helpful, George. That's really helpful language. You're right. It's not, it's not the overt thing which the liar does. They overtly contradict the facts. It's the covert mission of the bullshitter to not have you know what they're actually doing. It's a covert mission. I love that. That's very helpful. Thank you. All right, we're going to go to our last text. There's lots more that you have in your packet, but I know it's late, and I know we've been on for a long time, and you've been amazing staying this focus for this long. I'm so impressed with my people. I brag about you all the time. You have to know that I brag about you to my colleagues all the time. They're like, you taught an hour class and then had a discussion? I'm like, oh, yeah, my people are there. My people are in it. They are in it to win this game of growing and knowing and oh i'm like i brag about you all right so here's gordon tucker himself in his article entitled aj heschel and the problem of religious certainty and so uh let's go to this thing where you see the brackets where it says faith's faith's certainty is intuitive not speculative Many of its elements can neither be tested nor verified. So here, instead of faith, I want to read truth. Or instead of certainty, I want to read truth. Like, faith's truth is intuitive. This is to Bert's point earlier. Not speculative. Many of its elements can neither be tested nor verified. Is the exodus true? Do I love my daughter? Is that true? Well, that can't be tested. Right? I mean, I can give testimony. She can give testimony. But, like, ultimately, did the exodus happen? Is that true for me as a Jew in a way that doesn't have anything to do with facts? Right? It's intuitive, not speculative. All right. So then we get this, and here's my daughter. Like, come, come say hi to everybody, like, so that you can, you've been talked about. You should at least be able to, like, say hi. All right. So, all right. This is why Heschel loved Menachem Mendel of Kutz's reading of Psalm 14:2. Hayesh maskil doresh et Elohim. All right. So the straightforward translation of this quote from 14:2 in Psalms is Hayesh maskil. Could there possibly be a person of wisdom, of understanding, doresh et Elohim? who's mindful of God, the Kutzker Rebbe read this quote in a different way. Hayesh maskil doreshet Elohim actually means is a person 
who has nothing but my skill, nothing but wisdom and intellect, do they really have the possibility of uh, being mindful uh, of God? So, uh, so this is for me, like I know for a lot of you don't know Hebrew or don't know why this is important. Like this is the way that our philosophers play with our tradition in a way that's really important for me. Cause I think this is totally true. If you read it straightforward, the way people translate the Psalms, this means, is there a person of understanding, a person mindful of God? Right? Who seeks God? Who explains God? Who gets God? Dorish, like drash, like who drashes God. Um, but the Kutzka Rebbe, a spiritual seeker, turns it around and says, Hayesh makes it a question, not a statement. Is, is there a person who's only intellectual, who has the capability of, of drashing God? So down to Heschel, in Heschel's words, not all that is evident is capable of being demonstrated, right? So this goes back to your point, um, Bert, that you brought up. Like, not everything that is capable, like, not everything that's evident, not everything that's true is capable of being demonstrated. And Rabbi Tucker said to us, that something can't be rationally demonstrated doesn't mean it can't be experienced in another way. Just because I can't demonstrate my truth to you doesn't mean I'm not on a real path to pursuing truth. So I want to move from, you know, questioning truth as a way of fomenting doubt and weaponizing doubt. I think that's what he was trying to do with us. There's that level. But then we come full circle to the other level, which is I can't ever tell you what's true for you. And that's just as dangerous, right? Me saying to you, this is the fundamentalist saying, if you don't see it my way, you're wrong. Like you're just read out of it. You're wrong. And so I think like it's, I think he was trying to bring us to the sense of a balance between them that we have to have some idea of what we can agree on as fact that we have to have some way to agree about the truth of things. And weaponizing doubt is really scary right now. And hiding people's real agenda is really scary right now. And so we, we have to know what we have to be certain about certain things and insist on it and say, no, the virus is spread through blah, blah, blah. You can't open a tattoo parlors and think if the numbers are not going to go up, we have to agree on a certain level of truth. And on the other hand, there are truths that we can't possibly talk to someone else about in terms of proving because there are truths or they're the ways we're pursuing truth. And as he said in another text that he brought us, as human beings, we're still evolving in our relationship to truth. So both of those are always going on. And as Jews, because we're nuts, like we hold both of those completely present um, at the same time. And I think that is a really important way to think about truth right now. Um, Cause I get fixated kind of on the one axle and like, but there's another axis and there's an axis that talks about, we can't know what's true for someone else because we can only know our esoteric truth on some level. I know that we're really an honest pursuit of the truth, even if it's really different and radically different from someone else's.